0: Good morning. If you would turn with me to Haggai 1. It's going to be our passage that we're going to be reading this morning. It's 1005 in your Pew Bibles. I'll give you a moment to find it because it's one of the more challenging books in the Bible to find. I'll admit it was hard for me to find when I was looking it up earlier. And while you're turning to that passage, if there's any of you out there who are expecting soon, I'd say congratulations to you and suggest that this passage actually has several different names, which are very rich and unique that you might want to consider naming your new child. So, anyways, join, join with me in, in Haggai 1 as we read the word of the Lord this morning. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat... But you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, and Je- Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message: "I am with you," declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of Hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. The word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning again. Um, My name is Isaac Vineyard, and I am so honored to get to explain God's word um, this morning with you. Um, and next week as well. And so I'm excited about that. I'm particularly excited because we're looking at this book of of Haggai, this often overlooked book in the Old Testament. Um, in some of your Bibles, perhaps only taking one page. Um, and so we often just move right by it. And yet I think it is a, an amazing message from the Lord. And so we're going to look at that first chapter, which was just read for us. But before we jump into the text... I want to give us a little bit of context about what's happening here. So let's just think through the story of God's people in the Old Testament and find the placement of this particular book in that story. So for the majority of the Old Testament, we know the people of God as the nation of Israel. Uh, They're the descendants of a guy named Israel. Um, But we actually are going to back up two steps in that story to Israel's grandfather. His name is Abraham. And and Abraham is just an idol-worshiping heathen like the rest of us. Um, And then he has this amazing encounter with God where God calls him out of his way of living. He calls him out of his family. And he says, I'm going to give you this amazing expanse of land that is called the promised land. And and then he says, I'm going to fill that land with an amazing amount of descendants, which is startling because at the time of the promise, Abraham is 75 years old and has no children. But perhaps most significantly, God promises that these descendants are not just going to be the children of Abraham, but they're going to be God's people. And he says that he will dwell in their midst. And so fast forward just a bit, Abraham has a son named Isaac, and God says, I'm going to carry the promise through Isaac. And then Isaac has these two sons named Jacob and Esau, and God chooses to carry the promise through Jacob. And Jacob's name is eventually going to be changed to Israel because of this wrestling match that he has with God. Israel means wrestles with God. And he has 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And we are skipping an enormous amount here. But um, what happens is they find themselves in Egypt, and not just in Egypt, but they find themselves as slaves in Egypt. And yet, even as slaves, they're growing as a nation just as God has promised them. And so after being there in Egypt for quite some time, um, God, by his power and his mercy, is going to call them out. He's going to free them from slavery and, and bring them to the land that he promised to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. And as they're wandering in the wilderness somewhere between slavery and the promised land, God is leading them, God is speaking to them through this guy named Moses, But God doesn't want to just dwell with his people through Moses. He wants to be in the midst of his people. So he asked them to build him a tabernacle, a sort of mobile home for God in the middle of their camp. And so that's what they do. They build this tabernacle. And just for history's sake, that happens in approximately 1445 BC. But here's what's significant. When they finish building the tabernacle, in Exodus chapter 40, we're told that the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. And it's so great in the tabernacle that Moses, this one who has seen the very face, been talking to God face to face, he can't be there anymore. And he has to run out of the tabernacle because God's presence is so thick in the midst of his people. And so God dwells there in the center of the camp of the Israelites, And he does this through the time of Joshua and through the time of the judges. And eventually, a kingdom is established. And they're going to get this king named David. And and David looks at the situation and he says, It seems incompatible with the character of God that I, that David, would be living in this house of cedar while God has no permanent home. Well, God is still living in a tent. And so he decides to build God a permanent home, but God says, Nah, no thank you. God says, I don't want you to do it. And so instead, it's his son Solomon who builds the temple. And what's amazing about this in 959 when Solomon finishes the temple, the same thing happens that happened when the tabernacle was erected. First Kings chapter 8 tells us that as soon as it was finished, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord so much so that the priest couldn't even be there because God's presence was in the midst of his people. God's making his dwelling now permanent with the people of God In Jerusalem. Now, here is why all of that is important. Because I want us to make sure that we understand that the temple represents the presence of God among his people. So, when we move forward um, into this period of time called the exile, this really important thing happens. So, the temple is going to be destroyed. During the exile, the nation of Israel is hauled off to Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, and through a series of invasions, um, starting in 606 and ending in 586, for those 20 years, a series of invasions leaves Jerusalem decimated. The city is burned to the ground, the temple is burned to the ground, and and, and what we're seeing is that the presence of God among his people has been displaced. Displaced. And this is why the book of Haggai is so important. Because in 538, the Babylonian Empire is conquered by the Persians, and the leader of the Persians, a guy named Cyrus, allows the people to return to the land and to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple of God. Cyrus allows the people to begin to rebuild their lives. But more than their lives, he's allowing them to rebuild, to reestablish their relationship with their God. He says, you don't have to worship the gods of the Persians. You can worship your God. You can seek the presence of your God. Go do that. And he doesn't just allow it. He actually finances it. He gives them the money that they need to build this temple to reestablish their relationship with God. But instead the people of God begin to recreate their lives without God's presence. And so God sends the prophet Haggai. and He comes in the year 520 BC. It's 16 years later. 16 years of inactivity. 16 years of not pursuing the presence of God. 16 years of consumption with themselves prompts the Lord to send Haggai his prophet to tell the people it's time that you prioritize the rebuilding of the temple. And why? Well, We know why. Because rebuilding the temple, it it, it symbolizes the presence of God with his people. So in essence, what Haggai is telling them to do, he's saying build up or cultivate the presence of God in your midst. So he confronts them with this failure to obey the word of God and he calls them out. He points out how their disobedience has removed them from the presence of God, but also from the blessings of God because they have chosen to live for themselves. In some ways, the book of Haggai is a book about how we choose to spend our time and our money. What do we choose to do with the blessings that the Lord has given to us? And so this week, as we look at chapter 1, I hope that we'll be challenged to think about the way we invest our own resources. Ultimately, I pray that we would be convicted that we ought to begin to cultivate the presence of God in our own lives, even as the Israelites were called to do. So let me remind you, of what the book of Haggai says. Chapter 1, we find Haggai here um, talking to all of Israel, but specifically to their leaders. He's specifically talking to the governor, Zerubbabel, and the high priest, Joshua. And here's what he says in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people, these leaders, these people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. That's what the leaders say. What does God say? Verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, put them into a bag with holes. He says, you have been pursuing your own well-being Your own pleasure, and you have been forsaking me and my presence. And let me just ask you, how's that working out for you? How's it going? You satisfied? Here's what you should do. Verse seven. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much. And behold, it came to little. And when you you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. So God here, through his prophet Haggai, is pointing out that the Israelites are poorly investing their lives in their own desires instead of the worship of God and the cultivation of the presence of God. The people have become completely indifferent to the presence of God. Now, now, certainly, what's happening, we're told in Scripture, what's happening around them is some of the other nations are opposing the rebuilding of the temple. So they have some opposition, but it really seems like the people of God are kind of looking for any reason to get out of this work. Would I mean, you ever do things like that? I know I know I do if I will look if i don 't want to do something, I will look for any excuse possible to get out of doing it. I will do things that I hate to do just to not have to do the thing that I hate to do even more. If I need a clean house like a really clean house, I just need to be required to respond to emails, and I will spend hours cleaning my house, cleaning my house. Why? Because I will come up with any reason. Anything that I can come up with to justify not doing the thing that I am called to do in that moment. And that's what the people of Israel had done. They didn't want to rebuild the temple. So instead, they built their own houses. They spent their time and their money on that work. And I'm sure that they claimed they didn't have any time. They didn't have any money. right? But their houses tell the real story. Which is why God asked them in verse 4, Is it a time for you yourself to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Or he calls them out in verse 9, My house lies in ruins while each of you is just busying yourself with your own house. Right? Their houses said what was important to them. Their houses said what we care about is our own comfort. Now, sure, the economy's not exactly booming at the time, right? What we're told is that when they eat, they are never full, and when they drink, they never have enough, and their clothes don't keep them warm, and their wages just fall out of their bags. So, sure, they seem to have very little money. But I wonder if the reality isn't that they have been given plenty. But their greed has so overtaken them that it feels like they just never have enough. Right? We do spend most of our lives thinking, if I just had this next amount of money, if I just got that next big step in life, well, well then I'd be satisfied. Right? Then I'd be able to give myself more freely over to God if I just had that or if I just had this. But then we reach it, we get it, we find out that there's another step on the other side, there's another amount on the other side. I don't know if you've ever hiked in, in the Rocky Mountains, but when I've gone and done that, one of the things that's struck me is what it must have been like for Lewis and Clark as they were going across the country trying to find a way to the other side. And they would get to the Rockies and they would look up at this big mountain and they would think, if we just get to the other side of that one mountain, we'll be there, smooth sailing on the other side. And then they get there and they find out that on the other side there's just another mountain waiting for them. And then another, and then another But isn't that the way that we so often act in our lives? I wonder if that's not what's happening with the Israelites and with us as well. We think if I just had this, if I just got that, then I'd be satisfied and I would be all in for Jesus. But God says, you are never going to be satisfied by the things of this world. You will only find satisfaction in me. The church father, Augustine, says this. He says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. So, so even in, in the midst of a bad economy, in the midst of financial difficulty, in the midst of busyness, if we want to find true satisfaction in life, we must invest in the presence of God. It's said that the, the reformer, Martin Luther, used to say, I have so much to do today. I must spend the first three hours in prayer. I mean, imagine if that was the disposition of our hearts as well. When we look down the busyness of our lives, does it cause us to spend more or less time with God? Haggai is calling the people to invest themselves in cultivating the presence of God I mean, think about it. Think about what a statement it would have been if they would have rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. It would have been this clear and public statement that the thing that holds the most value in the hearts and the minds of the people of Israel is the presence of their God in their midst. God is their highest priority, higher than anything else that would hope for their attention and their devotion. So we ought to consider that same question. What are you investing your life in? Right, we know we're investing it in something. We give our lives away one hour at a time, one day at a time, but what are you giving it to? What are you investing it in? And perhaps a better question, what is the return on that investment? I know that for me, I invest way too much of my life in sin and self-centered pursuits. I think it's fair to say that I cultivate the presence of sin in my life. In reality, right, if we're not cultivating the presence of God by faith, we are cultivating the presence of sin in our lives. And I don't have to wonder what the return on that investment is because Scripture makes it incredibly clear. I'm told that the wages of sin is death. I don't even have to wonder. When I invest in sin, I receive a return of death. But the reality is that I know that and I still far too often work on the cultivation of the presence of God in my life. And what about you? Have you neglected the work of the presence of God? Are you fully invested in Christ? Or are you pursuing yourself and just throwing God the leftovers? Here's what Haggai would say. Consider your ways. Are you satisfied? Perhaps it's because you're being stingy with God. Let me ask you this. Let's get get real. Where's your money go? Whose kingdom does it go to build? Where's your time spent? Whose kingdom is it used for? Is it used for? Right, and you may you may be thinking, yeah, but I don't have any time. You don't understand. I am super busy. I like do my job, and by the time I finish my job and like take care of stuff at home, it's just time for bed every day. I don't have any time for this. But I think that the reality is that a lot of people have decided that their jobs are a handy excuse for not cultivating the presence of God in their lives. And so they just keep on taking on more things so they don't have to do the work of knowing God. They're just like me cleaning my house because I don't want to send an email. It's not that cleaning is bad, but it is if it keeps me from doing what I'm called to do. Right? Doing your job with excellence is good. But if it's getting in the way of you cultivating the presence of God in your life, it is a damnable sin. So let me ask you this question What would it look like for you to have everything that you want in life? And when you think about that picture, is God there? Is he at the center? Or is he sort of off on the sidelines? Is the presence of God the central desire of your heart? Psalm 37 4 says this. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Do you see what that means? Not that you get whatever you want. But that if what you really want is God, then God will graciously give himself to you. So the question seems to be, what do I really want? What is my heart's desire? Because that's what I'm going to invest in. That's what I'm going to pour my life out towards. And so friends, if you're looking at your life and you're thinking, okay, okay, I'm not investing well. I'm not pouring my life out in the right direction. What do I do? Well, simply put, you change your investment, right? When an investment doesn't work, you change it. And so let's consider how the Israelites responded. And we get an example of it here. Look back at this, starting in verse 12. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and of the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. The church word for what happened there is repentance. The people of Israel, together with their leaders, repented. They turned from their selfish pursuits of their own kingdoms and they began to get busy cultivating the presence of God in their midst. And their example shows us three things about repentance. So let's consider what repentance is first. It shows us this, repentance prompts obedience. Perhaps a, a better way to put it is simply this, repentance is obedience. We're told in verse 12 that the people obeyed the voice of the Lord. Repentance involves this change of behavior. So we're corrected because we are behaving wrongly and we change it and we begin to obey the word of the Lord. To repent is to obey His commands. Relatedly, repentance happens out of a fear of God, which is basically to say that they considered the words of the Lord rightly. They respected the word of God. They heard the words of God as words of authority in their lives, words of weight. And so because of that, they responded in obedience. Finally, we see in the repentance of the Israelites that repentance happens because of God. I think that we often think of repentance as something that is separate from God or something that we do to bring us to God. But the reality is that repentance itself comes from God. Right? Here's what's happened here. It says that the Lord is the one who stirs up the people to begin to obey. From the beginning of this whole thing, the Lord says, I am with you. In this, I am with you. So repentance is something that we're called to do by the Spirit, but it's also something that we are empowered to do by the Spirit of God. And I tell you this because I want you to know that if you feel your spirit being stirred up, if you realize in this case that I'm not cultivating the presence of God and I feel my spirit being stirred up, I want you to know that you're not alone in that. In fact, that very stirring up is God's presence in the midst of you. And not only that, but that when you seek His presence, it is Him who gives you the power to know Him. Repentance isn't something that we do on our own. It is the work of God. And it's His work because it is His desire to know you even more than it is your desire to know Him. He wants to be with you even more than you want to be with Him. He desires to know you, to have a relationship with you. And this is true, friends, this is true if you're not a Christian or if you have known God for years. Jesus wants a closer relationship with you. And he wants that so much <clears throat> that he has made an investment on your behalf. He knows that you're not good at investing rightly. He he understands that we often invest in sin and that as Romans says, right, the wages of that sin is death. And so we, we need the rest of that verse which tells us that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you are looking down a lifetime of investments that lead to death, know this, that Jesus would like to gift to you an investment of his own, of which the return immediately is life. And when I say life, what I mean more than anything else is the presence of God and the joy that it brings to be in his presence. The joy that we see in Psalm 16 that says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Right? Life isn't simply the absence of death. It's the presence of God. The life giver. This is why when, when John is talking about Jesus in John chapter 1, he says this, he says, In him is life. Right, Life isn't something that Jesus just gives us. It's something that we find in him, in relationship with him, because life absent Jesus isn't life. Brother Warrantz, the the French monk known for his reflections on the presence of God, says this. He says, I cannot imagine how religious persons can live satisfied without the practice of the presence of God. For my part, I keep myself retired with him in the depth of the center of my soul as much as I can. And while I am so with him, I fear nothing. But the least turning from him is insupportable. This is a person who understands the importance of the presence of God. The least turning from him is insupportable. Wow. I wish that that was the heartbeat of my life. So as I've thought about in preparation for this sermon, I've tried to think, okay, what are some really practical steps to cultivate the presence of God in our lives. And so I've come up with four things. And and as I thought of them, I thought, these these aren't original ideas. In fact, they seem really obvious and simple. But I know that for myself, those are the things that I seem to struggle with the most. So here you go. You want to cultivate the presence of God in your life? Read the Word of God. The Bible is the primary way that God speaks to us. It was true in Haggai's day, and it is true still today. But here's what I would challenge you to do. Begin to read the Bible in a way that invites God's presence. Don't rush through it. Set aside time in your life to quiet yourself and focus on him and go into that reading with the intention of meeting with God, not settling some theological argument. I think a particularly relevant thought for many of us comes from Henry Nowen, who says, Often, we find ourselves entangled in such a complex network of discussions, debates, and arguments about God and God issues that a simple conversation with God or a simple presence to God has become practically impossible. Read scripture with the intention of just knowing God. And those simple conversations with God that Nauan refers to, they're another way that we cultivate his presence. We must be faithful in prayer. We should be praying, in fact, that God would himself stir up our affections for him, that he would make us to fall deeper and deeper in love with him and just hate the sin in our lives. Third, begin to spend time with other people who also love Jesus and also want to cultivate his presence in their lives. And, and this doesn't have to be some like weird accountability group or or Bible study. Just just spend time with each other. Just allow the conversations that you're having with one another about the work of God in your life to lead each other to love Him more. Now, certainly, Bible studies can be a great resource, right? Friends, I think our renew groups are an amazing way to spend time with other people who are also seeking just just to move just one step deeper in their relationship with God. Finally, it's worth noting that God has given to us pictures to remind us of his work. So take the time to stop and to truly consider how things like, just like creation... Consider how creation itself points to the attributes and the power and the nature of God as Romans 1 promises that it does. But not just creation. right? Also, the, the sacraments. In the sacraments, we're drawn into his presence as we, as we remember his work of grace on our behalf and experience in the sacrament continued working of grace in our lives. So this morning, as we take communion, as we, as we see this, this picture of the death of Christ, allow that to, to draw you deeper into his presence. Friends, there is no place better. There is no place sweeter than the presence of God. And he has made it clear that he has always desired that his people would be with him. The question seems to be, do we want to be with him? So this morning, he is inviting, he's inviting you deeper into relationship with him. And I pray that each of us, whatever your relationship is now, I pray that today you take one step deeper in your knowing of Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious God, We do thank you that you want to know us, that you want to be with us. We thank you that you so desired to be with us that you would send your only son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place so that all who would repent and believe in him would have life, life abundantly, life eternally in your presence. So Lord, would you stir up our love of you even now? Give us the courage to repent of sin and the power to cultivate your presence in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.